Our first scripture reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through to 20. Romans 3. This is one of those uh, go-to passages on the doctrine of total depravity in a context where the Apostle Paul has been speaking about the, uh, the difference between Jews and Greeks, uh, Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 9 he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speak to, speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if you would turn, please, to Psalm 14, which is the text for the sermon, Psalm 14. I think you'll recognize the similarity of language at certain points in this psalm. Similarity to what's just uh, read in Romans 3. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. And then from the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 6, which you uh, should find in your bulletin.
heading on this chapter is uh, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. Article 1. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purposed it to order it, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Article 2. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Article 3. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Article 4. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Article 5. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be, through Christ, pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. And Article 6, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal and eternal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, though many today, even some who call themselves Christians, think lightly of your laws, preferring to speak only of your love and grace, will you help us to take both law and grace with the utmost seriousness as two necessary parts of your covenant so that we see all the more our need of the Lord Jesus Christ and have direction also in the showing of gratitude and the need for us to show gratitude for the gifts that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Covenant people of God, the unbeliever has, I think, from the time of the fall onwards, generally struggled to accept the biblical truth about man, what is sometimes known as biblical anthropology. You might have heard of anthropology as a study you can do at universities, uh, usually to do with the history of mankind, as people understand that, and sometimes also bringing in fossils and those kind of things into the picture as well. But uh, biblical anthropology is the study of what the Bible has to say about man. And people in our society, unbelievers, and as I say, from the time of the fall, have struggle, struggled to accept the truths that the Bible says uh, and states about mankind. And there are probably two things especially about the nature of man that are especially problematic to the unbeliever. 
One of those is to accept the truth that man is a creature made by God, that God is the creator and we are the creatures. And the other truth that they have struggled to accept and still do struggle is that this creature is a fallen creature filled with sin and rebellion and guilt. Now, I remember a time when the average unbeliever would see himself essentially as a pretty good person as long as he was living more or less in an outward kind of way according to the second table of the law. People felt that if you treated someone decently, if you more or less followed what the Bible says about that, but uh, forget about the first table of the law, doesn't matter about your relationship with God, as long as you treat people more or less according to the second part of the Ten Commandments, then you could regard yourself as a good person, even if you rejected the first table of the law and rejected the truth about God. Well, now it seems the average unbeliever would see himself as a pretty good person, even if he is, even if he is breaking uh, all sorts of commandments in the second table of the law, as well as the first table of the law, even if he is involved in various perversions and abominations with respect to the second table of the law, and on top of that, rejecting everything in the first table of the law, he can still be seen as a pretty good person, and the evil people are the ones who say, no, we should be following the whole of God's word. The evil people are the ones who disagree with that position. And that is, in a way, a change in society. But in another way, it is not a change. Because the underlying assumption still remains, and that is the assumption that man himself is the one who can define good and man is the one who can define evil and man is the one who can define man. Man is the one, the creature, is the one who can have the final word on the very nature of what it is, an essence of what it is to be human. We, however, are committed to the Lord's definition of these things. A definition that we see coming out in Psalm 14, just as we see it summarized in the Westminster in uh, chapter 6. I'm going to look at the text under two headings. First of all, the description of the wicked fool, and secondly, why the wicked fool should be worried. Description of him and why he should be worried. In the first place, then, the description is given here of the fool, as that's mentioned in verse 1. And that description is one that runs through to verse 4. It's probably helpful for us to understand from the start that a fool is not someone who is simply silly. That's the way in English we often use the word, someone's acting like the fool, acting the fool and uh, that could be a description of someone who's just doing something a little bit silly, maybe even deliberately. But when the Bible talks about the fool, it is referring someone to someone who wickedly despises and rejects the wisdom of God. In other words, uh, that's not just a matter of, re of rejecting what God says about what wisdom is in his word, but more than that, it means rejecting the one who is the wisdom of God made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the Bible means, at least frequently so, when it speaks of the fool. 
nor is this fool some odd exception to an otherwise good and wise human race. This psalm makes it clear that the description of this fool is something that applies to everyone, to all who exist by ordinary generation. In other words, everybody except the Lord Jesus who didn't come into this world by ordinary generation. But for everybody else who has come into this world in the ordinary way, in other words, a universal truth. And we see this coming out throughout this psalm by the use of universalizing words, especially in verses 1, 2, and 3. There is no one. Verse 2, the Lord looked upon the sons of men to see if there are any. Verse 3, they have all together. There is no one, not even one. You see that universalizing language there. And this is one of the things that we mean as reformed people when we speak about total depravity. The truth, well, we could use the words of Romans 3 verse 23 to state it. All, totally, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you put together a number of words, a number of verses like that, uh, you wonder how it is that people could disagree with this teaching. Because it's so common in the scripture, in the book of Romans, in the Psalms and elsewhere. Indeed, Psalm 14 is itself quoted in Romans 3 verse 10 forward to make precisely this point that both Jews and Greeks, and that covers the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, Jews and Greeks are all under sin, Romans 3 verse 9. That all the world become accountable to God. Because no one is justified by the works of the law, verses 19 and 20 in Romans 3. It is in some ways then rather surprising that in so many churches today there is actually a a rejection of this truth of total depravity. And perhaps the explanation for that is that even in Christian circles there is still this sinful tendency to try and define, for man to define man his way rather than for man to define man God's way. Well, as noted, we don't want to let man determine the nature of man or of good and evil. We want to accept what the Lord says. And Psalm 14 is very definitely his view. Verse 2, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. It doesn't say, Man looked around at the sons of men to see if any understand or seek God. Psalm 14 is God's evaluation. From his point of view then, a number of things must be said about the whole human race. Two things in particular I want to draw attention to here in this description. The first is that the fool, and remember that is essentially everybody, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Referring to the natural man, there is no God. Now, of course, not all believers are confessed atheists. Some claim to be agnostics, the ones who say, well, we can't be sure whether there is a God. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. We just don't have enough information to know. You also have those who claim to believe in some kind of deity, 
but they don't really know anything more than the fact that maybe there is a designer for this world originally, but they won't say more than that. And then there are those who believe in false religions. And then there are those who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus, and yet at the end of time they will be found to be hypocrites, if not before. But in each one of those cases, the heart, that is to say the whole inner person, the soul, the mind, the will, we see that the mind is involved, no one understands That's a matter of the mind. We see that the will is involved in this. No one seeks for God. That's an act of the will. So the whole inner person, soul, mind and will, lacks a true belief in the living God in each one of these cases. There is, on the contrary, a commitment to no God. They don't, therefore, call on him, not in truth. They might speak the words but not in truth. And this then governs every thought and every word and every deed, making all of those things that they think and say and do into statements of unbelief, even in the very act of talking about God, even sometimes in the act of talking about their sins or talking about the truth or talking about what is good and right. From that point then derives the second thing I want to draw attention to here and that is the statement that no one does good, not even one. A statement, in other words, that the deeds of the natural man, no matter how noble those things may seem in themselves, acts of charity and so on, are in fact rooted in the belief that there is no God. And for that reason, in God's view, they are regarded as corrupt as well corrupted by that underlying conviction or belief that there is no God. Of course, there are those who also go further with that unbelieving presupposition, some who go further into wickedness so as to commit abominable deeds, as verse 1 says, rather than noble deeds, or perhaps to persecute God's people openly, to eat up God's people as they eat bread, and uh, that's uh, quite a graphic description in a way. You think of uh, a hungry, someone getting up in the, in the morning and feeling uh, hungry and grabbing some bread and eating it enthusiastically to satisfy their hunger every day. And that given here is a picture of the way some who go further into wickedness, how eager they are and on what regular a basis to try and bring down God's people. And there are some who act like that those who want to put God's people to shame, as verse 6 says. And uh, sadly, as God's people, we sometimes give them plenty of material, plenty of ammunition with which to put the Christian faith and Christians to shame. But whether whether it is a milder or a more extreme form of unbelief, the basic truth remains that all have turned aside and become corrupt in every aspect of being and life. And that is why we talk about total depravity. As described in this article of the Westminster Confession, this chapter, especially articles 2, 3, 4 and 6, which uh, talk about how everyone has derived from Adam by inheritance and by imputation. Imputation means Adam as our head and representative of the human race, uh, what he did 
in rebelling against God has been counted as ours because he did it as our representative. And so everyone having this nature derived from Adam by inheritance and imputation then goes on to express that, that original sin as it's called, expressed in various sinful thoughts and words and deeds. Now, deep down, whatever unbelievers say, they know that they are sinners and they know that God exists and perhaps even know that one day there will be a judgment and in that judgment they will be found wanting. But they suppress those truths in unrighteousness, as we've seen before. They should be worried, though they try to hide that deep concern, they try to to hide that worry under various forms of escapism usually, but they should be worried. Even though they try and hide it, they should be concerned, deeply so. Our second and final point. And while, while there are many ways at which we can angle, from which we can come at this and say why it is that unbelievers ought to be worried, the one that is focused on in this psalm is that they should be worried when they consider God's people, when they consider the church. For despite the fact that they eat up his people like bread and try to make the advice of God's afflicted into a shameful thing, despite that fact, God is with his people, he is with his righteous generation, verse 5, he is with his church. And you see, the preservation of the church, won by the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually evidence of God's existence and of his preserving grace. To be sure, it's another truth denied by those who suppress the truth, but nevertheless, it is there to be seen and it has been outworked in history again and again. This is really a point that is taught in Revelation chapter 11, the vision of the two witnesses. The two witnesses who were killed but then who come back to life and the result of their coming back to life is great fear on those who are watching. And you think of those nations throughout history who have tried to do this Uh, nations around Israel that tried to destroy God's people. The, uh, the, The Roman Empire and its attempt to stamp out New Testament Christianity. In its own way, even the persecution of Roman Catholicism, trying to persecute the faithful. The Soviet Union in earlier times. And communist China to a large extent today as well, it seems with renewed vigor. The harder they try to stamp out the Christian faith, the worse the shock when Christians come out of hiding again and the church comes back into the spotlight again and again and again. This is the assurance of verse 7. Verse 7 starts with a cry for help. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. That's a cry from God's afflicted people. It starts with a cry for help, but it ends with a certain expectation. When, not if, but when, the Lord restores his captive people. And because of that certainty, this psalm ends with the joy of Israel. It ends on the note of the joy of salvation. In the face of all that opposition, because of the certainty that God is with his people and 
He keeps on delivering. He delivers his people from our sin, but he shows throughout history how he delivers his people constantly from the threats that come from Satan and his allies. Well, the unbeliever will often try to offset this fear by pointing to the sins of God's people, both collectively and also individually. And uh, as I said, uh, we sometimes give them plenty of material for that. But you can think of uh, prominent celebrity preachers, TV evangelists and ministers who so often, it seems, fall into gross sins. And the world loves to have that kind of information and try and capitalise on it to set aside the dread, as it's described in this psalm, that comes when they see, even though they don't want to admit it, when they see God, through, his, through the grace of Jesus Christ, preserving his church. But when they see Christians sinning in this way, especially the more uh, well-known ones, then you know how it goes, uh, the kind of statement. Look, Christians, here again we see it, Christians are no different than non-Christians. They just try to hide it under a facade of self-righteousness. That's the accusation. But there is a difference. There is a difference at least between the world and the true church, between the unbeliever and the true Christian. And that difference is not in the existence of sin in which believers also have to deal. We we have to deal with that. There's so much sin that remains in us and the Westminster makes that clear in Article 5 that sin is not just something that unbelievers have to cope with but we also as God's people. The difference, uh, and Article 6 also goes on to give a kind of general summary of what everyone deserves in themselves, the wrath of God, curse of the law, death, all miseries, spiritual, temporal and eternal, a summary of what everyone deserves, including us, what everyone deserves apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the difference doesn't lie in the presence of sin within us or in what we deserve in ourselves. But the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian lies in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the fact that he is with his righteous generation and that he is within his people. This is often said, uh, it's often been said before, that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is certainly not that non-Christians are sinners whereas Christian people are perfectly righteous but in the fact that Christians are saved sinners that is the chief difference the church is the generation made righteous the generation counted as righteous by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness his payment on the cross for our sins counted as our payment his rendering of all obedience to his father counted as our rendering of all obedience despite the fact that we still have so much sin within us clinging to us in our old nature and despite the fact that sin itself still warrants death curse and misery but the lord jesus took that death and curse 
and misery on himself for us. Of course, Psalm 14 doesn't go into all that detail. It sums it up before the time of Christ simply by saying that God is with us. In other words, God is our Emmanuel. And by saying that God is our refuge and by saying that God is our saviour and that God is our restorer. The Apostle Paul in Romans and in the New Testament, uh, you find this as a whole, the New Testament supplies the detail to that as to how God carries that through in history through the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ to be our saviour and our restorer and our refuge and our Emmanuel and our righteousness. So in the New Testament we find then the Apostle Paul, for example, saying that since everybody sins, Adam's sin is imputed to us, we've inherited it through our parents, and no one therefore can justify himself before God, and therefore we need the righteousness of Christ through faith in him as a gift of grace. And that's part of the conclusion that the Apostle Paul reaches in Romans 3, verse 21 forward, after citing Psalm 14 and similar Old Testament evidence about the sinful nature of the human race. And that surely is why we focus on sin. Why we talk so much about original sin and why we talk about actual sin and why we talk about total depravity. We're not talking about those things in order simply to make ourselves feel miserable, though some in the world think that. We're not simply talking about those things to make non-Christians feel miserable, though some out in the world think that. And we're certainly not talking about those things in order to make ourselves feel superior to unbelievers because as we're hearing here, we actually don't have a reason to feel superior. It's not for those reasons that we talk about those things. It is to see so that we see ourselves the need of the Lord Jesus Christ, both on our own part and also on the part of others. Because all have become corrupt, but he is the refuge and the Saviour and the Restorer, God with us, and He's the only one. This too is one of the reasons why we admonish and discipline covenant members who willfully break the covenant. It is not just to make them feel guilty. It is certainly not to make ourselves feel superior. But it is to remind them also of their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their only hope so that they may, Lord willing, turn back to him. And that is why pleading with erring sheep should involve not merely an admonition of their sins because of their sins, but along with that, a call to heed the gospel. That gospel that as covenant members, they know so well. In fact, whenever we dwell on sin, when we dwell on total depravity, and for that matter, when we dwell on the law of God, let it be in this way, in a Christ-centered way, so that we bring together those truths alongside the grace of God in Christ. Amen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep us from a self-righteous and superior attitude over against unbelievers, knowing that we have been saved from the same unbelief and that we have in our old nature the same kind of sins. Though we thank you, Father, that we are different because of another new nature, one that comes through the work of the Lord Jesus, not one that we have created, but a gracious work by your initiative and the work of your Son and the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, will you increase in us because of these things our desire to proclaim the only hope of deliverance from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. We have uh, read and uh, heard about Psalm 14. We will now sing it, asking for the Lord's help in the face of sin and wickedness and persecution also, that we have his help, the one who is our Saviour God. From the Red Book number 14, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology.
after the blessing is our doxology, also from the Red Book, number 47b, stanzas 4 and 5. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.